<laughs> Live from Salt Lake City, this is Heart of the Matter, where we do all we can to worship God in spirit and truth. I'm your host, Sean McCraney. Really excited tonight for a number of reasons. Uh, sitting with me is Dave Donaldson. I only know like a couple facts about his story. He sent me some things, but we talked and I said, I do, I, we wait till we get on stage and we can do this live. I can learn all about him and then I can ask you questions. But the thing that's kind of fun is that we come from the same uh, stomping grounds, Southern California. We went to the same steak dances, uh, danced to the same popular <laughs> bands, which you just reminded me of, and uh, know the same people. Christy Johnson, who we've had on the show as a dear friend, is Dave's cousin. And so she told me to contact you and just said, uh, you know, he and his wife have an amazing story to tell. So as usual, welcome, brother. Thanks, brother. Yeah. And um, and let's start like we try to do with everybody. Dave, is uh, you just reveal and tell what you want. But I'd love for you to go back to mom and dad, getting married, having kids, siblings, church activity, high school, proclivities, who you were, what you were like, how you related to God, if at all, the Mormon church. I know you're related to that because we went to the same steak dances. And, uh, and then um, bring us up to uh, kind of your family up to now. And then before, you, where you're coasting along through life like most of us, and then something happened. We'll stop there. We'll look at a spot, and then we'll come back and, uh, and then continue to hear what you're doing. So it's all yours, brother. I'll interrupt you if there's something that I'm more... I think would be really interesting, at least for me to know. So I go all the way back to, I was born I, a poor black child. That's right, that's exactly <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, born in Linwood, California. Hey, same Linwood. Same place as Weird Al. Um, so, got that in my, in fact, same year, same hospital. Whoa. Yeah. Um, grew up in uh, La Mirada, Whittier area, and then moved to Garden Grove uh, in 69. Huh. Um, like and, it, and what a magical year that one year was, you know, of my childhood. Uh -huh. um, within and that was sort of, you know, I was I was born in 1960, so I was like a nine-year-old kid. Uh, summer of love, you know, 68 to 69, mm -hmm. that time. Uh, and it was it was amazing to be alive then, you know. Like uh, I think my first political awareness was my parents talking about Nixon, you know, running for president, and and then you know that same in, the, in what that 12-month period, like. Uh, uh, Bobby Kennedy was shot. Um, Martin Luther King. Uh, we we hit. We landed on the moon. Uh, the month after we landed on the moon, the Manson family murders in Southern California. You know, it was, it was like this. A lot of stuff going on trippy. in my life. It was a trippy time mm -hmm. to grow up. You know. So wait, Whittier. Do you remember a life there? Did you go to uh, uh, the the ward there in Whittier? Because so, I grew up in Whittier till I was uh, what ten. I grew up in Whittier till I was nine. I think I was my nine. mother bore you. <laughs> <laughs> you do have very handsome uh, features. I'm just looking at myself right now. <laughs> no, do you, Whittier, what ward? Uh, Whittier, I was in the seventh ward. Whittier, seventh ward, and Whittier, fifth ward. Who was your bishop in the seventh ward? <sighs> seventh ward. Who was in that ward? Osler's Shields. Osler? Yeah. We lived down the street from him. It was my bishop too. So I lived down, I lived like my street teed into uh, the Creek Park. Parnell Creek uh, Park? What was that called? Uh, no, it was La Mirada Creek Park. La Mirada Creek. 
Yeah. So wait a minute. What junior? Did you go to junior high? Or no, I moved when I was nine. So nine. I went to Valley how, View. Uh, how about grade school? I went to Scott oh, Avenue. Or, no, I went to. Uh, where did I go in? Sorry, you guys. We don't really care about <laughs> it, about you. Uh, oh, anyway. Samuels. Samuels Elementary. Okay. Right wow. Up the hill, right, right up the hill from La Mirada Creek Amazing. Park. Yeah. Wow. And you know, look, you got style. You still cuff your jeans. You, you know, <laughs> I get mocked for just being myself and you've got, all right. So now I understand you better. So keep going. So you moved to, from La Mirada, you moved from La Mirada to Garden Grove, yeah, my 69. Dad, my dad got a job there and... Uh, my parents were looking at two houses, one in Costa Mesa, one in Garden Grove. Mm-hmm. And my mom said, I'm not moving to Costa Mesa. It's just strawberry fields. There's never going to be anything there. Wow. That's how I got the Garden Grove. Wow. Well, it's not too far away, you know, right there. Yeah, but. What high school? Santiago, Santiago High School. Santiago, all right. Uh, mom and dad, LDS? Mm-hmm. Active? Yeah. Um, yeah. That's what I say, too. My dad was kind of, yeah, go. Yeah, 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 my dad, you know, he was, uh, you know, he was in the bishopric, you know, when they still had 70s in the wards. He was 70s group leader, um, you know, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, Parents still living? They are. Divorced. Oh, okay. Wild story. And how old were you when that happened? Um, 40s. Oh, okay. My 40s. How about but, siblings? How many? Uh... Three siblings. Two, I'm the oldest. Two younger brothers and younger sister. Wow. So high school, what were you into? Sports? Yeah, I, <clears throat> I tried to be into sports because my dad was, uh, my dad, my parents both grew up in Salt Lake. My dad went to East High School. My mom went to South High School. Um, my dad was, you know, he played football, did all the stuff. So I tried to do that. Um, and uh, I, I was, I, I was not good at it. In fact, until uh, uh, probably through 14 years old, I thought I was a short, fat guy. Um, I just like, I, start, I think I started my sophomore year in high school, like five foot three, about wow. a, a buck 30, you know, just like wearing husky jeans. Wow, <laughs> husky jeans, <laughs> JC Finney. Exactly. The husky jeans, I hate it with my mom. Do you have the husky for my son? Mom. So you were you had money if you went to JC Penny. We went to the treasury, which is the, the off brand of JC Penny. <laughs> But I know Husky. <laughs> All right. So. Uh, yeah, but then I just had a growth spurt. and uh, When did that hit? That hit sophomore year. And then, you know, when a kid, a teenage kid gets a growth spurt, it's kind of like, you know, uh, you, you don't own your body. You just like got a body. You just got it. Yeah. And you're trying to figure out how it works. Yeah. And so uh, that was awkward for a couple of years. And then. Uh, I like the way you're doing that, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> a gangly puppet. That, that's how it feels. Like, yeah. you know, like I don't really know how this works, but I, it, it, I, I guess I can control it, right? <laughs> yeah. There's one part you learn how it works, though, yeah. isn't there? <laughs> Very quickly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, I uh, had a, a lady in my ward who was uh, into music and stuff like that, you know, one of the young women's leaders. And she heard me singing one time. She goes, wow, you have a good voice. You can sing. I'm like, whatever. And so she kind of like egged me on into singing. And I turned out, turns out I did have a pretty decent singing voice. And, and uh, there was a group in, in our high school that was like a, one of those performing groups, like Young Ambassadors, you know, singing and dancing like the Donnie and Marie show. And uh, I was like sucking at football. And I like beating myself up with like sweaty guys every afternoon. And then there's this opportunity to like, touch girls and hold them and dance with them. I'm like, well, that's a no-brainer. Yeah. Let's do that. Yeah. 
And so some, I made some of my closest associations the last couple of years of high school, and, and we have friends that we ran with. My, my, my wife is my best friend's girlfriend from high school. Um, oh, wow. It's a car song, but it's... <laughs> um, but yeah, and, and we still, like, they're still our best friends. Oh, our wiser friends. We, there's about three or four of us from high school that we still run together, we travel together, and our kids are like cousins kind of thing. All those high school years active? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did, all the, I did all the stuff. Checked all the boxes, you know. Yeah. <clears throat> Church dances, like we talked about, um, was always, like, involved in, like, going and reviewing the bands, hiring Pegasus and Primo to play steak dances, you know, and wow. couldn't wait to get to the Huntington Beach dance. Yeah. Um, yeah, I remember the, the Pegasus when my first steak dance that I saw them, they had those things blow up. Right? And I was just amazed. Yeah. It was Kiss. Yeah. In the steak Yeah. Center. And all my, all my friends from high school that weren't members of the church, they definitely wanted to be at the yeah. at Mormon dances, Mine you know, too. because it was, it was a live band on a Saturday night yeah. for a buck. Yeah. Um, and cute girls. Yeah. Like awesome girls. Yeah. I never understood though, even then, uh, why they would open with a prayer, ask that the spirit would be there, and then, and then the band would open with feel like making love. <laughs> Exactly. I mean, it was such a disconnect to me. I could never put it together. That was the beginning of many disconnects. <laughs> it I'm, was. I'm, I'm guessing. Yeah. So, uh, mission? Yeah. Um, sort of mission. I didn't know I was going to do that. Um, I thought I might, you know, but I, I turned 21 in the MTC, so I was kind of like a late bloomer. I'm still a late bloomer. I'm just like, I'm 59 years old trying to figure out, you know, I think I know what I'm going to do when I grow up now. Yeah, I get for the rest it. of my life. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I got called to Japan, which was not uh, awesome. Mm-hmm. When I opened the call, I'm like, I don't even know what what that uh, what does that mean? <laughs> wow. How how would I even learn that language? Huh. Did you master it? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I still speak it. Wow. And I I um I worked hard for it. Mm-hmm. And when I got back from the mission, when I was going to college, um. I immediately found out that I had a bunch of, in Southern California, I had a bunch of uh, a disproportionately large number of dude friends that spoke foreign languages. I'm like, well, there has to be money here, right? So um, I started a business, small business in college, uh, language and translating and interpreting. So we do courtroom work and insurance company work, doctor's office stuff, you know, um, some, live, some live courtroom work and uh, some, and for Japanese, because in the 80s, Japanese in Southern California, a lot of, I, did, I taught a lot of classes like Hitachi and Yamaha and all those businesses that were like, you know, sure. booming around there, you know. Mm-hmm. Taught expats how to speak English, taught people, you know, uh, English, you know, gaijins, wow. uh, white people how to speak Japanese. Mm-hmm. And did, was, was that a going concern? I mean, did it grow? Yeah, I mean, I made, um, so it grew and, and at the same time, um, like right as soon as I got home from my mission, um, I was, uh, there was a guy named George Curtis who ended up being, some, some people know him around here, he was the head trainer for BYU's football team for a lot of years. But back then, he was an um, uh, athletic trainer at Santa Ana College. And he um, got this new gig for this new professional football team um, called the, uh, Steve Young's first team, LA, LA Express? Express, yeah. Yeah, with the, with the uh, USFL. Oh, yeah. And... Uh, he, he came to me and, he, and I knew him. He was like a youth leader in Garden Grove Steak, you know, and he said, hey, he goes, you know, I'm going to take this job. I can't teach early morning seminar anymore. Do you want to take this gig? And I'm like, 
oh, maybe. And, uh, and I taught, I went, I started teaching early morning seminary in that stake. And I thought, this is awesome because I'm lazy. And um, <laughs> so I'll read the scriptures every day, right? <laughs> and, uh, and it gets me up in the morning and like, this, is, this could be cool. So I taught for four years, taught early wow. morning seminary for four years and, and then went to college and you know, had, that, had that business. And, mm-hmm. and I actually thought I was gonna teach in CES. I thought I was gonna be a CES guy for a long time. Okay. So was that uh, Senate, what, what college? Um, to attend while you, uh, Orange Coast. Orange Coast, okay. Yep. So uh, then marriage, kids. Yeah, I got married. Um, you know, checked all the boxes like we were talking about before. I checked all the boxes. We have a very similar, we have, re- I mean, seriously. But, but similar you, you, trajectory. But my trajectory is going to go in a different direction. Are you sure? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I had a very short marriage. You know, I, I checked the boxes off. I got married uh, in the L.A. Temple. Um, and uh, within three years, I was getting, I, I was a single dad with a, being a divorced dude, wow. and my head was just spinning. Hmm. Um, so CES was out of the question because CES has a zero tolerance policy for divorced dudes, you know. Zero tolerance. It is. Wow. <laughs> yeah, you can, be, you can be a lot of things, Christy knows, but you can't be a divorced guy. Wow, amazing. So did the divorce shake you at all? Oh, yeah. 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 Yeah, a lot. Because, you know, and, and, and the divorce was actually my first real come to Jesus moment, truth be told, in my life. And I did this, I checked the boxes, you know, and I thought I was, and we all do. We all think that we are, at any given moment, the best evolved version of ourselves, right? Um, but I remember sitting in my parents' back porch one time and, uh, and just like heaving sobs. I couldn't figure out why, how, how I was going to, you know, I was holding my side, sitting in this porch swing on my parents' porch, and thinking, how, how am I going to be like a single dad? I don't even know anybody that's divorced. I don't even know what that means, you know, culturally in my church culture and the, the larger culture. I don't know how I'll do this, you know. And I remember like shaking my fist at God. Mm. And I'd never had like a shake my fist at God conversation with God before up until that time, mm. which is it's a good place to be. Sure. I didn't know that at the time, but I was giving it to him. Mm-hmm. And I was, you know, you know, telling him that, you know, I went on a mission, I checked the boxes, you know, you know, why am I, why the hell am I doing, you know, this kind of life? And can I say hell here? Oh yeah. <laughs> you say anything you want, brother. <clears throat> and, uh, and I was, and I remember saying something in my prayer, like, I, I don't think, th- there's no possible way that Jesus could know what I'm going through. He wasn't married. He, wa- he didn't have this kind of betrayal. I'm like, oh, oh. And as soon as I said betrayal, like I just, I just start sobbing. And it was my first moment where I felt a connection to healing and to a savior. Like that, that had never, that had escaped me up until that point in my life. Wow. Um, and it was, it was a powerful beginning turn for me. It's interesting because in the Mormon community, of course, you know, uh, divorce, that's, oh, you know, so bad, so bad, so bad. But already you're saying that through that negative <clears throat> experience, which broke you while you were sitting on the, the chair at your parents' house, I mean, it opened you up to understanding him. Of course. Mm-hmm. Of course. I mean, you know, you, you know the end of this story, you know. It's always, it's always in our brokenness yeah. that, that we find mm-hmm. God. What an important message. And it's one of, the, one of the complaints I've had personally 
against uh, the institution of Mormonism because they try to perpetuate this perfectedness in everybody who's playing that role, and they'll do anything they can to, uh, to avoid breaking when it's the breaking that, that, that gets you, like right? you said. I know. But, you know, to be fair, it's any institutional Absolutely. church. Absolutely. You know, it's, it's just, uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure how that happens where you get away from the authentic teachings, but it happens in every mm-hmm. institution. It just does. Totally agree with you, which is why I'm so grateful that you're here to, to share that and let other people hear someone else who's experienced that and even further down the road as you're, we're going to get to. Uh, you had one child with um, mm-hmm. your, your first wife. How old is that child? Is that she? He. How old is he now? He'll be 31 in um, uh, September 16th. The same age as my, my child. And I was married in the L.A. Temple. Me too. Yeah. Wow. So... Uh, Work? What, what are you doing? What were you doing then? Um, what I was doing then, so I, 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 I figured out that I couldn't be in CES because I'm a divorce guy, so that's not going to work out now, so do something else. And I have a child, so I went and got my real estate license and worked in real estate in Southern California in the 80s. Um, we did um, some equity sharing, financing stuff when the SNLs were, before they were deregulated and some, some of those kind of things, helped investors and new first-time buyers find stuff. So my whole life I've always been... Um, I've mostly been involved with real estate development, construction, and stuff like that. Got it. So are we uh, ready to progress? Sure. Before we do, we want to show you one spot for uh, uh, Check My Church, and uh, then we'll come back and hear um, where, where Dave is at now, and uh, it's really going to be important.
Sarah's got some radical stuff going on with Check My Church. It's growing. More and more people are getting interested. Uh, more and more pastors are running with their tails between their legs. And uh, so really support her and what she's doing with that. I hope she continues to do it. If For more information, check below. And for more information on Dave uh, Donaldson, his wife's ministry and outreach and the work that he's going to explain that they do now, check below as well. Dave, so keep us going. <laughs> well, I think we'll, we'll fast forward. So Linda and I, um, you know, after my divorce, um, um, I was a single dad for a long time. Um, I met Linda. We were friends from childhood. Um, we had, we were just friends from childhood. And that was the beginning of our relationship. Um, and like all love relationships, you know, um, it, it is what it is in the beginning, you know, and, and uh, it starts with, I'm in love with you because how I feel about you, you know, and then that, that's still about me. That's not really love yet, you know, but, but it grows, you know. And so um, we, we worked on that. We had, we started having a family. We had some kids. We have three, three sons. Um, and um, I think what you want to fast forward to is, is what we talked about on the phone, probably so. Whenever you're ready. Um, yeah. All this stuff is great. I mean, it plays into who you are and how you got there. Well, we, we, um, we started um, a couple of businesses here in Utah, and we um, were, were doing some real estate stuff, and we got involved with a real in a real estate deal with some people um, that we, we kind of knew, and um, the uh, it, it went it went badly, it went badly, and we ended up having to sue them for specific performance, and they'd used the prop the property they sold us to cross collateralize some other loans, and it was was tied up, and then they filed bankruptcy, which kind of you know just messed everything up. We ended up as a creditor in a in a bankruptcy court. And it was, you know, I was super um, angry about that, of course. But I was also living kind of fast and loose. You know, I was really, really wounded from my divorce. Not just my divorce, but it was a, it was a custody battle um, and, uh, that I lost. Um, and it was, it was uh, traumatic and devastating and, and very, very painful. The most painful thing I'd, I'd suffered in my life up until that point. Um, and uh, so we, we were in, involved in this, and we ended up in bankruptcy court as a creditor. And uh, then one day in uh, May of uh, 2002, I think, went out to my mailbox, and I had a couple of letters in my mailbox from attorneys, and two, two separate attorneys, and they were both soliciting me to be my defense counsel in criminal case. I'm like, what? And... Um, so I called one of them and I said, hey, uh, what is going on? And he said, oh, he goes, you're, you're in serious trouble. He goes, you have a bunch of charges against you. And uh, with minimum mandatory, you'll, you, you'll go to prison for the rest of your life. And I went, what? Um, I, I couldn't believe what I was hearing, you know. And so I immediately called my attorney and I said, hey, Mike, you know, uh, this story. And he goes, wow, he goes, can you get out of town? I'm like, what? <laughs> and he goes, you're going to be arrested. And I'm like, for what? He goes, I don't know. He goes, you tell me. I'm like, I don't know. And so, uh, you know, we, we, uh, took, um, we took our kids, our little kids, you know, to my dad's house and, and, and uh, him and his wife. And I said, uh, hey, I don't know what's going on, but I called my attorney and, you know, here's this story. And he said to meet him down in Provo at 4th District Court tomorrow. We're just going to go before the judge. We're probably going to be arrested and... Uh, we, we just have to figure out what's happening, but there's something seriously going on here. And, um, and our attorney had told us, yeah, just come down, get your kids taken care of. Uh, we'll go on the court calendar. We'll get on the end, end of the calendar. We'll go in uh, X party and 
we'll just tell the judge we're here, he'll book you in, get fingerprinted, do your mug shots, and then we'll figure out bail and go from there. I'm like, <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> but we went to court the next day and, <clears throat> and the judge said, uh, thank you for Mr. Provo Court. Provo, yeah. Thank you, Mr. and Mrs. Donaldson for coming in. You know, appreciate you appearing. Um, no bail, we'll, we'll let you go on your own recognizance, but you're gonna sign these promises to appear. You have a lot of serious charges against you and you're, um, there's gonna be an officer, some officers come to your house to arrest you over these. And I said, can you tell us what they are? And he says, well, the officer came in a couple weeks ago and he brought all these charges and I, I signed them all. He goes, I don't know all the specifics of the case, but your attorney will tell you, the, the clerk will give the, the, your attorney everything and you'll have a chance to answer all the charges. And I'm like, what? So long story short, uh, um, we both had charges against us, um, all financial crimes. I had 19 counts against me, 14 of which were felonies, including racketeering. Wow. Um, it was very serious. Um, and so we started like going through this stuff. And the judge that day said, by the way, he made us sign promises to appear. And he, and he gave us the carbon copy and he said, now put this in your pocket. This is your get out of jail free card because there's gonna be officers from Pleasant Grove where you live to come arrest you. And when they show up at your door, tell them you've already been to see me and you won't be arrested. I said, okay. <clears throat> so a couple weeks later, uh, sure enough, uh, our driveways, both are all blocked and there's four police cars in front of our house in the evening on a Wednesday night and pounding on the door and... How old are the kids? Three, four, four to 14, four, three to 13 or something like that, you know? Wow. <clears throat> and so I'm like really, so by this time I've seen some of the charges and I, and I, I recognize some of what's happening. And I've, and I've been answering some of the stuff for my attorney. So I smugly take my get out of jail free card out of my pocket and I shove it in this guy's face as my front door. I said, something stupid, like I don't think we're being arrested boys or something like, you know, something's <laughs> like, like I'm in a 1930s movie or something. You know? I don't know what, it was, it was whatever it was. It wasn't, yeah, whatever it was, it wasn't, you know, yes, sir, thank you for yeah. being, you know, and yeah. it wasn't that. Um, he grabbed it out of my hand and I went, oh, oh. <laughs> I shouldn't let them grab it out of my hand. So they go out in their police cars, you know, and they're on the radio and they're doing all this stuff. And, and we're just in our home, just like, you know, frozen in fear. <clears throat> well, um, this is the pivot point. I didn't know it at the time. I had no idea at the time. But years later, this was the pivot point. Um, all, my, all my people I went to church with on my block, they're all just looking out their windows like, what's happening at the Donaldson's house, you know? Um, also probably frozen in fear. They have no idea how to respond to what they see, you know, happening at the home of people that they sit in pews with in church every Sunday, right? And the one lady that's uh, on our block that's not a member of our church, um, she went to Rock, Rock Canyon Christian Church down in Provo when Dean Jackson was a pastor and they were meeting in the Cinemark Theater, you know, back in the day. And um, she just came and pushed through the police cars and came to the door and said, how, how can I help? And I said, I, I think, I called her by name, I said, I think we're being arrested tonight. Can you take the kids? She said, yes. <clears throat> I didn't know, I, didn't, I couldn't comprehend it at the time because I was in so much pain, you know? Um, but she didn't know what the end of that story was. She didn't know if we were gonna bail out in a minute or a day or if she's gonna be dealing with DCFS, or she had no idea. She just saw a, a, a neighbor in pain and came in 
in the most nakedly open-handed act of Christian charity that I personally had ever experienced mm. up until that time. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, we, we were arrested. We were taken away, you know, in handcuffs and put in cells. And, and um, we, we didn't know it at the time. We didn't know it for month, till months later. Um, but what had happened was the, the officer that tried to arrest that got all these charges against us, he was friends with the people we were in the real estate deal with. He was trying to not be the high school resource officer and trying to become a detective on our case. And, he, and one of the things he'd done for months is sit outside of one of our businesses. And as people would come out, we had a, a cabinet and custom furniture shop. And if people would come out, he'd solicit them to be in a case against the Donaldsons. And he would say, these people are ripping people off. If you've given them money for a deposit for cabinets or furniture or design or whatever, you're probably gonna lose your money. You're a victim in this case. And so in the shop with all our employees, we're finishing jobs for weeks, you know, and nobody's picking up their stuff. And I'm like, man, this is, this is weird. You know, I can't get people to return phone calls because well, all this stuff was happening. So um, <clears throat> what it tur- we, didn't, we didn't know the following for months either, but what turned out what happened was when, we, when he found out we'd gone to court that one day when we'd saw the judge and he'd have his signed promises to appear, um, he got notification of that. And this is back in 2002. So things aren't as instantaneous online as they are now. He went and filed all those same charges with a new judge as if these first charges didn't exist. Of course, that's illegal. You can't do that. It's against the law. Um, but it happened. And that's how the arrest was done. And it got us on the news and it got us in the newspapers and, you know, all that, all that shame, right? All that heavy wow. shame. Wow. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> eventually, we were able to um, talk to the county attorney that was uh, looking at our case. And, he, and I, I was able to look at every charge when they were charged. And I said, well, I know what this one is. This is how this happened. And we found this cop had done this. And I know what this one is. I know what this one is. And the, the county attorney finally looked at me one day. He says, I, I understand where you're coming from. And he goes, you can probably go to court and fight this and beat, and beat some of this. He goes, but we'll probably get convictions against both of you for some of this stuff. And you'll probably, we can probably put you in jail or prison. He said, so. And I'll never forget these words. He said, if you'll fall on your sword, we'll let your wife go. Wow. What do you do? It didn't turn out that, that nice. It, w- it turned out worse than that later. But I immediately said, yes, just tell me how far to bend over and which angles to grab, and I will just take it. Mm-hmm. Um, because the options are, maybe we both lose our freedom, mm-hmm. um, and maybe our kids go into the system and you know, all that stuff, or I totally mess up everything, and I can't do restitution or probation or whatever they're going to make me do, but at least my kids get one parent, mm-hmm. for sure, is what I was thinking at the time. You know. Sure. So it took us a lot of years to unwind all that. Um, and, and we sat in court one day. I had to sit in court like a, a lot of people I know now and allocute to things that I did not do and, and have a judge say to me now, um, I need you to tell me that you're not, doing, not being coerced into this by any means because if you are, I can't, accept your, I can't accept your allocution. And I had to lie and say, no, I'm, I'm, no, I'm doing this in my own free will. People do this in, this, in, the, in the system, right? Um, and I ended up paying restitution to people that... I didn't owe any money to and all that kind of stuff. And, and I was pissed for a long time about that. <clears throat> and then I remember one, one day about, so this is, uh, this is 2002, so it's 17, coming up in 17 years this June. Um, about seven or eight years ago, I'm driving home from Salt Lake. And um, this is, I wish it was a distant memory, but it's not a distant memory. It's still like every day I'm just angry about the injustice of this and we lost our home, we lost our businesses, you know, started over with nothing and, you know, all that stuff, you know. 
And uh, I'm driving past a prison in Draper and I had this really strong impression I need to go to prison and minister. And I remember this distinctly. I'm, I'm driving my truck and I have both hands on the steering wheel and I said, hell no to the universe, like aloud. Um, there's, there's no way I would do, I'd never be in a place again with no doorknob on it, you know, and all that stuff. Um, but, you know, when God tells you that you have a mission to fulfill, um, that's a little beguiling and you eventually acquiesce, right? Like, <laughs> of course. <laughs> um, and so I, I, I heard that there was a lot of volunteers at the prison in Draper, you know. Um, I just had heard people that, that do that. And I didn't, I, I figured that was probably pretty competitive and I didn't even know what that looked like, what ministry would look like at all or anything. <clears throat> so I called down to the county jail in Utah County and I just said, did a blind phone call and said, do you guys ever use like religious volunteers for stuff? And they said, oh yeah, we have like an LDS branch, we have other stuff, you know. We have, I said, well, I don't need to like be any particular thing, but I'll, I'll do whatever, you know, maybe. And so they said, well, we have an application, it's a background check, and I'm like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> and they sent me this application, it was 26 pages. Whoa. Which, um, it seems like a lot, but it really is a lot. Like I have, I have clergy credentials now in other jails and in both prisons, and my, my my background check was like, you know, one side of one page in some places <laughs> or two sides, you know. Utah County's was like, uh, have you ever taken something from, <laughs> some Pencil from your anybody that did not belong to you? Well, everybody uh, has to say yes to this, yeah. you know. And then you have to like, have you ever been charged with a crime? Have you ever been, you know, convicted? Have you ever taken a plea in abeyance, which is what I did. Um, so all that stuff. And then the threat at the end, you know, if you fail to disclose, we can, you know, blah. I'm like, come on, really? And, and so I looked at it and I didn't fill it out. And I, I set it on our nightstand and it sat there for a long time, maybe a year. Wow. A year, <laughs> my wife says. Um, and she says, are you ever going to fill it out? I'm like, I don't know. She goes, didn't you say God told you to do this? I'm like, maybe, I don't know. Like I could just be thinking this stuff, right? <clears throat> You're interesting, Jonah. So, keep going. <laughs> so I did it. So I, so I started filling it out and it was just painful, you know, because I, I had purposely buried this stuff, you know, like I tried not to do a Google search because my Google search was so bad and shameful in the news and newspaper articles and, you know, and uh, it, it was, it was a, a lot of shame and a lot of weight. Um, but I finally did fill it out and, I'm, and I just, I took it down to the jail. I'm like, there's never, never going to be they're never gonna clear me for anything because, but I told my wife I would do it, so I did it. How did the ward, the neighbors, as all this came out in the news, paper, everything, relate to you? Oh, um, complete, not complete, a lot of ostracizing. I can't say it Ostracizing. <laughs> Man, we are brothers, I'm telling you. It, it, you know, but, Culturally, what do they do? I mean, what do you do? If you're not trained, if you, don't, if you don't have that, if you don't have a wounded background, then you don't know how to, to if you haven't been a leper, you don't know how to sit with a leper, you know? You just don't know how. Um, so I don't blame them, but it was painful. It was super painful. But you have to admit, growing up LDS, I mean, all the lessons, you know. Oh, the, we talk the, the talk. The good Samaritan. Yeah, yeah. I will be my brother's keeper and all the talk. It doesn't, it doesn't translate through to most, does it? It doesn't. Um, and I, I'm not sure how that, mm. I'm not sure how you can do it, you know, because even like, you know, like missionary service, you know, which is ostensibly to go serve. It's not, you know, mm -hmm. it's, that's not that. It's a mm -hmm. lot of, you know, 
it's a lot of rule keeping and you know shame and you know other stuff you know so was the, were their responses to you damaging were they adding to where you how you were seeing religion as a whole and, and oh yeah 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 like for I, I i remember for a long time just absenting myself from any kind of church and and of course you know i quit talking to god because mm. i got other things to feel and 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 honestly like even going to church and feeling anything just everything just felt bad mm. um my kids, you know, I, 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 it was just, it was just painful. One of the things I did really early though, is I went and started volunteering for Habitat for Humanity mm. because part of my problem was, even though I, even though I tell you the backstory of, I was, uh, you know, this cop set us up and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. That's all BS mm-hmm. really, because I was in that situation because of me. Okay. I attracted all of those people to me, all of chaos, all the chaos that was in my life. Mm-hmm. That was all on me. Mm-hmm. I created all that. And, and that was, that was my pain. It was my past. It was my present. That I, I, I created all of that. Sure, I get so it's it. not anybody's fault. <clears throat> How was Linda through all this? Um, it was rough. Um, and we have fought for our marriage. And when I say we have fought for our marriage, we have fought. Good man. <laughs> Glad to see you're still together. Um, yeah. We, we've, we, we've had, uh, we, we came from different backgrounds, but similar backgrounds, you know? Um, I remember one of our fights um, in this time. We, we, we'd gone to Las Vegas, and we, we, something went sideways on that trip, and we came home. We drove all the way home from Las Vegas. We didn't talk the whole time, like for five hours. Just, can you imagine being in a car with someone and not saying a word for five hours? You couldn't do it. You yeah. can't do it if you try. I mean, it's just, but there was just so much, you know, so much pain, you know, on yeah. both of our parts, unhealed stuff that we didn't even know how to start to address yet, right? Um, so we, we learned that we, we, we grew that and we were determined to, we both came from failed marriages. We were both divorced when we found each other again. We found each other broken. We're going to, we're going to figure this out somehow. Mm. We're going to figure it out. <clears throat> um, so anyway, back to jail, my, my, uh, my background check passed and all of a sudden like the, the, uh, um, the chaplain at the jail calls and says, Hey, um, you're cleared to come you know, teach. And I'm like, huh? Uh, all right. <laughs> so the LDS branch president met me there in the chaplain, you know, in the jail. And, and the first day was in there about seven years, six or seven years ago was transformative for me. It was, it was a beginning of like powerful, um, amazing, beautiful, painful change in my life. The first day I was in, in the jail, um, I'm down at the chapel and uh, they're going to bring me one of the, one of the housing, housing units, you know. And because I'm culturally Mormon, I said to the chaplain and the branch president, I go, is there a manual for corrections? Because <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mormons like correlation, right? Of <laughs> and they just laugh and like, no. And then the chaplain said, the spirit brought you here. The spirit will teach you what to say. Mm. I'm like, okay. So they bring down this housing unit, 28 guys, and uh, they're down at the end of the hall. And, and you know, it's, it's a long hallway. And they're shuffling down the hall. And I had already kind of steeled myself, you know, I'm going to like, I'm going to shake every man's hand. I'm going to look him in the eye. I'm going to tell him I'm happy he's here today. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to give them something, you know, <laughs> the arrogance of, of I'm going to give somebody mm-hmm. something. Right. So these guys come down and, um, it's, it's, it's a little comical, but honestly, my feeling was when I saw him, I like, I thought I had got the crew of the black pearl. Like these guys are like, you know, 
like full sleeves and neck ink and head. And I'm like, what? Where are you? I mean, look at me. Like, yeah. I'm not, you know, I, I'm like, I don't even. Where's Primo? Where's Pegasus? <laughs> yeah. I have no, I have no re- frame of reference for this, right? So, um, but I'm shaking their hands and I'm like, okay, I'm going to like, and I had like a, a lesson, you know, that I thought about and prepared, you know, and prayed over and <clears throat> a message. And they all come in and, and uh, the door cuts, you know, shuts behind and the guard shuts the door. And I look back, I'm like, oh man, there's no doorknob on that door. <laughs> it's just like a door with no knob on it, you know? And I'm like, what? <laughs> so I walked the front and I, I turned around. And I said, guys, uh, I said, I'm, 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 uh, I'm off, you know, balance here. I said, clearly I'm a newbie. I've never seen you before. You've never seen me. So take it easy on me. Um, who would offer to give us a prayer to start our time together? And I'm not lying, Sean, the, the toughest looking guy in the group, you know, FU written on his neck and full sleeves. He raised his hand, missing gauges. And I said, thanks, brother. And um, he got down on his knees. And almost every man in the chapel got down on their knees with him. I'm like, where am I? <clears throat> and then this guy just opens up this conduit to God and you can tell that he knows who God is and he, and he knows you can tell he talks to God a lot and he says things like thankful for this good brother beard today to spend time with us. Please bless our families that are in pain today because of the choices we made that brought us here. Please bless, this is the most powerful thing. Please bless the people that we have harmed to be able to forgive us, not because we deserve forgiveness, but so that their lives are not destroyed by hatred. Where have you ever heard that? You've been in a temple, I've been in a temple. I, I've been in synagogues, I've been in chapels, I've been in cathedrals, I've traveled a little bit. I've never heard anything like that, right? Please bless our judges to be able to see our hearts. Those of us that have court this week, please bless our judges to be able to see our hearts. And if they can't, Father, And please bless us to be able to accept your will for our lives. Wow. In your son's name, amen. What am I supposed to do after that? It's amazing. And I knew at that moment that I met my people. And every every week, every month, every year since then has been, sorry, it's been very similar to that. It just gets better and better. Um, I would, uh, early on, um, I'd go on Tuesday, in the jail I was in, I'd go on Tuesday nights and do interviews with people, people that wanted to have an interview with somebody and talk to them or pray or get a blessing or whatever, you know. And I hear these stories. Um, I remember one night, the first year I was there, I was uh, 
we had the, the women's pods that night, the women's housing units, and um, just sort of a random pair up, you know, and I'd always ask somebody, hey, tell, just, if I get in an interview with somebody, interview room with somebody, tell me why you're here, why do you wanna, why do you wanna have a conversation, why do you wanna pray, why do, whatever you want, you know. I had this woman in here that was uh, in, in my room with me that was early 40s, nice little white Provo mom, um, started telling me a story. This is November of this particular year. Earlier that spring, she uh, had a back surgery, a very pain, you know, painful, prescribed opi opioids for pain medication. And in the summer, her daughter, doctor cut her off because that was enough, you know. Well, she was addicted by then. Her husband was in an LDS bishopric. She was in an LDS Relief Society presidency, which should never happen. Somebody should have caught that. They have little kids, you know. Um, and um, she's, she's here in this room with me, and she's pregnant, and she's just wrecked in tears. And as her story unfolds, she's telling me about how she heard her kids one night, one afternoon in her kitchen talking about some of her kids' friends talking about how you can get drugs on 3rd South in Provo which is where you can get drugs. And so she's a, she's an addict. Her doctor's cut her off. She knows she's gonna run out of pills in a minute. So she goes down to Third South and scores her first heroin, her first street heroin. Whoa. Gets a 20 bag and somebody shows her, her de the, the dealer she met just randomly, showed her how to rig up and shoot up and now she's, a her now she's using heroin, street heroin, um, and going to church. Pretty soon, she's feeling guilty because she's um, spending family money, you know, food money, all that kind of stuff on. So over the course of the summer, the brain works the way it does in addiction. She's trading sex with, she doesn't even remember now by the fall, how many guys, how many men she's had sex with to trade for drugs. She's got an active STD. She's pregnant with, she has no idea whose kid it is. Wow. And she's wrecked. All her husband knows is that she's been arrested the night before. And she's gonna see him through a glass in about a half an hour. And she just wants someone to pray with, to get strength to be able to tell him what she just told me. <clears throat> Nobody's immune. Um, <clears throat> and I see that's in our culture, this perfection culture we were talking about earlier, you know. People put on a facade. <clears throat> we got a good friend, a, a guy that, uh, he's a good friend now, but I met him in jail. Um, a guy named Dan Workman. Um, who uh, last time I saw him in jail was in 2000, fall of 2015, and, and then uh, we met up again in, in uh, summer of 16. <coughs> Returned missionary, um, but a, a raging heroin addict and a bunch of other stuff. Uh, when I met up with him, uh, saw him the first time out of jail, I saw him at a holiday gas station one morning, we were getting drinks, you know, and I'm like, oh dude, I remember, I remember you know, we hug each other because you can't hug in jail, you know, or prison. Whole, you know, hang on to him, like, so good to see you. And he goes, man, it's so good to see you too. And he used to come to my classes, you know, my Bible study classes and stuff. And, and uh, he goes, I, I got something I wrote that I want you to read. I'm like, hit me. So the next morning at 5.30, I get, he's literally like, he's like Chris Farley. He's living in a van down by the river. <laughs> he's been like clean for a month. He's been out of jail for about six or seven months, but he's only been clean for a month. Um, and he's like living in a van and taking a bath every morning in the, uh, pond behind Lone Peak High School and going to work construction. But he, he was writing on this little cracked smartphone he had, and he wrote an essay that he called uh, From Mormon Missionary to Junkie Felon. Mm. Um, 
and I was wrecked. It was just so beautiful and powerful where he was and how he grew up in the church and with a good family and good parents and all that kind of stuff and then where, where things went sideways, you know? And I said, some people have to, you need a bigger audience. People have to hear this story. So he published a book a couple of years ago now called um, Black Tar Mormon. Mm. I'll send you a copy if you like yeah. it. Dan's, Dan's, Dan's a guy you ought to interview. I would love it. You ought to have Dan on this show. Mm. Um, so I, I meet, I, I, meet I, I know hundreds of people like that now. Um, but early on, you know, I, I started hearing some of these stories, you know, of people that um, just fell. And then I start to see some people over and over again in my classes on Sundays that um, I know they are good people. They're ready for change, they're willing for change, but they're, they're missing some abilifying part, right? And uh, that was sort of the beginning of what my wife and I do on the outside now. We started a nonprofit called Fresh Start to help people transition out. And it's sort of based on, um, loosely based on uh, Father Greg Boyle's mm -hmm. ministry. Do you know Homeboy Ministries mm -hmm. in South Central LA? Yeah. Ever met him? No. You need to meet that guy, you need to go tour. Uh, Jesuit priest um, got assigned to the Dolores Mission Parish in South Central Art between the Aliso Housing Project, you mm -hmm. know, and in the 80s and the height of the gang wars. And I can't remember the number he told me, but some high number as a priest, as, as a Jesuit, um, after he'd officiated at some high number of gang related deaths, he realized that what he was doing in ministry was not sufficient for the population that he loved. And so he started a jobs program. Mm -hmm. I think the first iteration was called. Jobs for Hope or something like that, which have eventually developed into Homeboy. Mm. So we've developed, you know, we, we've developed a nonprofit that helps people transition. And it's just based on these hundreds and hundreds of stories that I've heard from people who just, they just need a little help. Is, is, it, is it Fresh Start? Fresh Start. Dot? Fresh Start Ventures. Ventures. Dot org. Dot org. <clears throat> uh, so it, it is helping them uh, assimilate back into, mm -hmm. so it's once they get out. So uh, is your work still inside? Uh, yeah, so, we, so I have clergy credentials in you know, a couple of jails, both prisons, and then we have, um, we, we've been able to facilitate the transition program. We have a good relationship. I don't know how we got that, but mm. I do know how we got that, but mm. we're blessed with it. We have a good relationship with Utah Department of Corrections. So we're inside, we're in the women's housing units, the men's housing units, the prison teaching transition classes mm. um, in the community, teaching transition classes. Our main curriculum was actually created by inmates in the prison in Gunnison in 2015. Wow. It's, the first, it's the first curriculum ever created by inmates for inmates, mm. kind of a life skills thing. And we're having it, working with NYU mm. right now to have it become evidence-based, awesome. start, start tracking things. So <clears throat> in all your experience, um, Dave, what, what is the salve? What is the thing that you see as having uh, prison credentials to go in and share, teach the Bible? What is it that gets to those prisoners into their heart that causes the ones who hear and change? What, from everything you've seen, what, what is it? Um, do I have time for another story? Mm -hmm. How much time do we have? We have five minutes, but we can go over. <laughs> It's too, it's too long. Um, I'll, start, I'll start it and then you'll stop me if it's, if it's getting too long. Several years ago, I was, I was in one of my Sunday school classes, my Sunday classes, a bunch of guys come out to the chapel and um, we're talking. I, I, I gotta talk, we gotta do, another, this, do this again because I wanna tell you about this forgiveness. Let's do, let's do part two. 
Yeah, we can do that sometime. Okay. But anyway, this in this one this one particular day, I'm talking to this class, and and I want I, I'm talking about the need for a savior, and I'm having a little bit of struggle, and this guy uh, says, "Can I share?" And, and by the way, I always I start every class I teach. I always start with. I've come with something prepared to talk with you about that I've thought about, i prayed over, but the most important things we can talk about is anything that's on your mind today. So at least a third or more of the time, I, we never get to what I had in mind. We're, we're talking about what's on their mind. And they have questions from the scriptures, you know, from the Bible, they want no answers. We go there. So um, this particular day, this guy, um, and I'll use a real name because I have permission for this one. I usually would, would not do this, but this, this old Mexican guy about, my, about our age named Santos. And uh, he says, can I share a story? I'm like, yes, please, man. He stands up, tall, lanky guy um, in there for DUI. And he starts telling this story about how growing up in northern Mexico as a kid, um, he comes from a big family. And uh, <clears throat> he was the youngest boy in his family. One weekend, his, one of his older brothers says, hey, why don't you come out to the bar with us and go drinking? He feels awesome because I'm a man now. He's like 13 years old, but his brother looks at him like, you know, he's, he thinks his brother's looking at him like he's a man, he can handle this, you know. Well, he can't go into the bar, but his brother sneaks him out of Cerveza, you know, like all night long, and he's like, you know, sipping beers and getting like drunk and drunk and drunk, right? Finally, you know, ends up throwing up on himself and all that stuff, you know, that happens. So this brother takes him, wants to take him home, and he won't go home because he doesn't want his mom to see him like this. So he stays out all night, and he, and he falls asleep. Doesn't come home till the next day, like afternoon. He has another older brother that um, is home when he comes home. His mom's been crying all night because he's not home. Her baby's gone. He has no idea what's happening, what the family dynamic is with his mom. He just knows he's ashamed that he got in this condition, doesn't want her to see him. <clears throat> so this particularly this other brother, the one that didn't take him out drinking, he tells him, put on the yoke and go get some water. It's, you know, he has to go get some water from the well, right? So he goes out to get some water, and, uh, and he looks at me, he goes, you know what a cowboy rope is? I'm like, yeah, I know what a cowboy rope is. And he pulls up his shirt, and he shows these big scars across his chest. Pull up his sleeves and shows these big, these big welts on his arm, these like keloids, right? And he said, my brother put a lasso around me and cinched it up and beat me and kicked me and was yelling at me about how I shouldn't do that to my mom and all this kind of stuff. And he goes, I know I shouldn't do that to my mom, um, but, but then the shame was even worse, you know, because he was taking a beating from somebody, his dad was in the Federales, told him never to take a beating from anybody, but it was his brother, and he had to take the beating and you know, all, this, all this conflict, right? Plus he's, he's got a hangover. <laughs> it's, all, it's really bad. So this thing, you know, he has, he's, has these physical scars and now these heart scars from this moment in his life. And he's in, just standing here in the chapel in jail in tears telling a story. He said, I determined at that time that I was going to kill my brother for what he did to me. And he said, I never had the chance because he moved away. He said, so my whole adult life, I plotted this. I learned martial arts. I learned how to fight. I learned how to defend myself. And I was always looking for my brother. And I eventually immigrated to the United States. And I, when we were in our 40s, I found out he lived in Colorado. And I went to find him to kill him. And he was just so hurt and pained over this. You know, and you know if you hang on to something, sure. it's always worse. It always, you always make it seem worse because you got to keep feeding that mm -hmm. demon to make it 
to keep the motivation up, right? So he finds where his brother lives. He goes to his brother's house, and this teenage kid comes out to meet him. And he's, you know, he's he's um, giving himself some courage before he went, and um, he just starts telling this kid, "Where's my brother? You know, this is my brother." And this kid presents himself as his nephew that he never met before. He goes, "I don't care." He goes, "I'm here to kill my brother," and tells him this whole story. You know, the teenage kid starts crying. Santos is standing in front of me, just crying. <clears throat> He said, please don't kill my father. My father's a good man. You have no idea what he's done to change his life. And he said, something in me, Santo said, something in me changed at that moment. He said, I was still angry at my brother, but I didn't want to kill him anymore because of his son. Mm. You could have heard a pin drop in the chapel or the jail. And um, he said, so I went away and the next day I came back. And I saw my brother, I pushed him. He said, you shouldn't have done that to me. Then we talked, then we hugged, we worked it out. And he said, and I did that, not because of him, but because of his son. And he says, and that's why I'm a Christian. Mm. Where am I? (laughs) Wow. I have a thousand stories like that, I mean, Um, when you go to the margins, if you think you go to the margins to serve, you miss the whole thing. You go to the margins to find your kin. You go to the margins to sit and find who you you are. And that's what I found. Two or three weeks, we need to have you come back. We'll talk more. Before we wrap it up for tonight, in all your experience in the prison, where do you see religion now? Catholics, Jews, Mormons, Baptists? I mean, how, do you, how would you articulate those institutions relative to the heart change that we're talking about? <clears throat> you know, institutions have their place, right? Um, institutions are never going to go away, um, but institutions don't do heavy lifting. Mm. Um, institutions usually produce shame. Mm. Institutions usually create shame culture, um, and we try to get we try to find people and help them heal from that mm. through Jesus. I mean, and through through love. Yeah. Um, you know, when people want to get, um, and I fight this all the time, my Mormon friends, you know, they want to do doctrinal stuff. I'm like, you know what? I'm a Matthew 22 guy. I'm still working on love God. I'm loving you the way I love me. So let me, fig- let me, let me keep working on that, and then we can talk about whatever you want to talk about. But I'm, I'm working on love. Good response. Really quickly, M. Scott Peck wrote a book years ago called People of the Lie. And in it, he, uh, he posits that the most sinister people are never found in the prisons because they're no. too smart. Yeah. They never get caught. That's right. And that the impetuous criminal types are, are not the most evil. They're not, they're just people who make big mistakes, right? Yeah. Do you find that to be true? Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and I'll tell you too, um, we, have a, we, have a, we need to have another discussion about forgiveness. And how I, forgiveness on part two. And how I learned that for myself, like in my tissues. Um, 
but I learned how to love people that I never loved before. That I couldn't see before my own pain until I had, till I was on the news, till I had shame, till I had isolation, till I lost my community. I couldn't see other people. And you know, Christy will tell you, um, we've had this conversation, but one of my classes I teach is a sex offender pod. Mm. Um, and you know, you wanna talk about the lepers? Those, those are the lepers. Mm -hmm. um, but my commandment is to love my brother. Good job, brother. Um, and I do love these guys. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, people that come out to a chapel to see me, they're not, you know, they're, they're looking for something, you know? Mm -hmm. um, they're looking for something. Um, and I have found, I've met my people. I've met the most amazing people in my life inside of a jail or prison. I can't tell you how much I appreciate your honesty, uh, your integrity, your willingness to just open up before us, you know, and share things that were just beautiful. And I know I'll announce it, but you guys at home will uh, announce it in the next couple of weeks. We'll see if we can get you back and uh, love to talk about forgiveness, yeah. more about Jesus, and then also what you and Linda continue to do in your ministry. So uh, thanks again, and we'll see you next week here on Heart of the Matter. Thanks, man.